Can you hear me? Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Detroit Opera House. My name is Arthur White, Director of External Affairs. We are thrilled that you are here for yet another opening night for what's going to be a fantastic production tonight, Madama Butterfly, probably one of the most famous and beloved operas in the canon. Now, tonight marks the 10th time that our opera company has mounted a production of this opera in our 52-year history. Can you imagine that? 52 years of bringing premier opera and dance to this region. Uh, and so we're going to look tonight about the history of the work. We're going to talk a bit about the composer. Uh, and then we're going to speak to two folks who are intimately involved in the production. Now, operabase.com, which tracks all the worldwide performances of opera lists Madama Butterfly as the sixth most frequently performed opera in the world today. Now that's pretty amazing when you think about all the thousands of operas that have been written over these centuries. Now the opera premiered in 1904 at La Scala Milan uh, with a libretto by Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. Now it's based off of John Luther Long's Madama Butterfly, uh, a story that he was told to by his sister uh, Jenny Corwell. Now the story was dramatized by American playwright David Belasco, uh, his play called Madam Butterfly, A Tragedy of Japan. Now this premiered on Broadway uh, back in 1900, of course, in New York. Now by the summer, uh, the, uh, the uh, play had moved uh, to London, and Puccini happened to be in London in 1900 because he had just premiered his Tosca, and so he was making the rounds with that fantastic work. And, and while he was there, he catches this play by David Belasco there in London. And I always find it interesting because Puccini did not speak English. How he found himself at a play in, in, in English, uh, but obviously it made quite an impression on him because he decided to drop the opera he was working on. He was gonna set the Cyrano de Bergerac story to music and he quickly dropped that uh, in place of Madama Butterfly. Now this opera has never been out of the top 10. It's always been very, very popular, uh, always in the top 10 for the last 119 years. Now, the, however, though the piece was dropped by the Metro Metropolitan Opera House uh, between 1942 and 1945 due to the, of course, the military hostilities between the United States and Japan. Now, although, as I mentioned, it's one of the most frequently performed operas, it was a total flop at its premiere. Uh, and so, uh, Puccini, as a matter of fact, it was such a flop that first night, uh, some of the reasons, uh, he was late in finishing the work. So there wasn't enough time for the singers to completely learn the piece and be very, very comfortable with it. Uh, the second act was very, very long. Uh, and the third thing was, there was no tenor aria. Can you imagine that, not having a tenor aria? Now, Enrico Caruso, who had just made his uh, debut, for example, at the Met uh, just the year before in 1903, he would have never sung uh, uh, you know, an opera that didn't have a great tenor aria. So uh, uh, Puccini immediately pulled it and began to revise it. So he took that second act, which was so long, and he broke it up uh, between, to make it the second act and the third act, right around the humming chorus, which uh, welcomes the third act. Uh, and then he added the tenor aria, Dio Fiorito Azio. Now, he re-premiered it three months later uh, in Brescia, and it was a triumph and has been a triumph ever since. Now, Puccini would go on to revise this work uh, no less than five times by 1907, uh, and our, two of our guests will talk to us about uh, what version we're going to see 
tonight. Now, this production of Madame Butterfly is a co-production between Detroit Opera, the Cincinnati Opera, the Pittsburgh Opera, and the Utah Opera. Now, Detroit's operas uh, its theme for the season is collide and collage. And I can't think of a better example of an opera that has east and west colliding uh, than this. Uh, we have a naval American, naval officer, attempting to impose his cultural perspectives onto a Japanese woman and an entire culture. Now, all the all-Japanese and Japanese-American creative team, uh, led by stage director Matthew Ozawa, uh, has reclaimed the opera's narrative through the lens of an entirely female Japanese design collective. Uh, those of you might be familiar with uh, Matthew Ozawa, he spent some time uh, here in Michigan. Uh, he was the director of opera at the uh, U of M. Uh, and so he said of this production, it seeks to release the opera's wings for all to express anew. And we have come to love this Western fantasy. However, it is not the fantasy of the Japanese identity. Now, uh, when this opera opens tonight, uh, we are going to be set in the United States, probably a little something you're not used to seeing. Uh, we meet uh, Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton. Uh, he's in his apartment, probably in some city uh, like New York, and he dons this virtual reality headset to escape into a fantasy. And within moments, he uh, joins a game which transports him to Nagasaki, where he embodies his avatar as a US Naval Lieutenant, and he meets his fantasy, the beautiful geisha Chocho-san, which of course also means butterfly. Now in this production, all the opera's events uh, are the invention of a modern day gaming Pinkerton. Uh, and so I, we just had the uh, final dress rehearsal two nights ago, and we welcomed the Detroit uh, Football Club here for the performance. Uh, and so these were all very you know, young men, and they loved it because they identified with Pinkerton, because they are all gamers. And so I was like, I never would have thought that uh, some young folks today would have identified so closely uh, to a 1904 opera. I was pretty, quite impressed. Now I'm going to bring in uh, our two guests to talk to us a little more about this production, what we're going to see tonight. Uh, the first uh, is uh, actually you no know, stranger to you. She actually works here. <laughs> uh, she has had a fantastic career already, uh, 25 years as a, a vocal a pianist and a vocal coach in opera. Uh, she spent 10 years at the Dutch National Opera, uh, and during the pandemic, she was anxious to come back. Well, I should mention, she hails from Canada. And so during the pandemic, she was anxious to get back to North America and her family. And so she began working with us uh, amidst uh, the pandemic. And it, as a matter of fact, this past week uh, celebrates her two years with us. She is the uh, head of music and the director of Detroit Opera's resident artist program, Miss Natalie Doucet. So she'll make her way here. Thank you, Natalie, for being here. And our second uh, guest uh, was born, and she's our lighting, director, uh, lighting designer. Uh, she was born in Tokyo, but grew up in Kyoto, Japan. Uh, she started out as a dancer, uh, but she felt that lighting was where the real magic was. And so she ends up working eight years at the Nippon TV, on, uh, TV network there in Japan. And then she makes her way to the United States in 2007 to complete her studies and to begin her career. And she's focused primarily as a light designer in opera, uh, dance, and theater. Theater, Ms. Yuki Nakase Link. So we can welcome the two ladies. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So come in. Let me uh, just get you a mic. Ready here? There you are. Thank you. And you probably. <laughs> Sorry, these chairs are high. Sorry about that, Natalie. <laughs> and you get to show off your fantastic dress tonight. <laughs> So I would like to start, uh, first of all, just to ask you, what was your first experience with this opera? 
And then in your case, uh, Yuki, could you also tell us uh, how, did, how was it that you became associated with this particular production? Hi, hi everybody. It's so nice to be here and look at all the people at your talk, Arthur. Yes, they love yeah. you. They knew you were coming. No, of course <laughs> not. Um, my first experience with Butterfly came as a young student when I heard it for the first time at the opera and fell in love with the music. It's absolutely stunning music. Puccini is one of my favorite composers. And it just the sweeping lines and you know the love duet at the end of act one, it's just something that really kind of grabs you no matter where you are in life. So I could really identify with the passion of the piece. Later on, I played it for the first time and realized how very difficult the music is and really, you know, there's a lot to do. There are so many colors and as a pianist, when we play in the rehearsal space, we try to make it sound as much as like the orchestra as possible. So we add a lot of things in the score that's not there, that is in the full score. There was a lot to do. It was really intricate. The voices were beautiful. And I just really always have, it's been one of my favorite musical pieces for a big part of my life. So to see it kind of reimagined, reinvented in this way, you know, Butterfly, it, the story is a little bit problematic because we're looking at something that was not really, it was part of Puccini's imagination of what life was maybe like in Japan and he had never been to Japan. So I think it's really interesting to see that part of it in this kind of way that you will see this evening where we're in Pinkerton's fantasy world in a game and it kind of makes it a little bit more close, to, I think, to what Puccini actually probably initially wanted with this piece. All right. Thank you very much for coming here and thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to work with this brilliant theater com uh, opera company with amazing opera team and lighting design team here. So the first time I attended opera Madame Butterfly was in Japan. My grandmother was huge fan of opera and it, she always took me to the opera theater and Tokyo Imperial Theater was my first Madame Butterfly experience. And the first look was huge celebration of Japanese culture on stage and I was very happy to see beautiful kimono dress and beautiful music with Japanese women on stage. But at the end, Chocho-san committed suicide. And that was making me thinking, making me question, question why she had to commit suicide, why she had to choose, she had to choose kill herself. And that was click, always like something, um, drag me to wonder why Puccini chose that way. And I kind of forgot about it until <laughs> Matthew Ozawa kindly reached, reached me to work with him with, for this brilliant opera production. Then Matthew Ozawa and set designer Kimie Nishikawa and costume designer Maiko Matsushima, three, four of us keep thinking about What's the Japanese culture in here? What's the quality of Japan drowned in beginning of 19th century? Oh no, 20th century. And what we should tell on stage in 2023? And 
you're going to see tonight is the answer of what we found from our study last three years. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. I was going to just say, I want to hit back on something that Natalie was mentioning. So I saw this opera for the first time when I was 17. I had gotten the opera bug in high school, uh, and uh, I had gotten a recording of Leontine Price doing all these arias, and two of them were from uh, Butterfly. And so I knew the arias, but I didn't know the story. Uh, and so I finally go to Lyric Opera of Chicago at 17 to see this production with Catherine Malfitano. Remember those old timers like me, remember that name. Uh, and so I was completely bawling by the end. And it just made me think to something, you know, 1904, uh, Puccini wrote this opera, of course, for the people who were in front of him in 1904, and of course, we aren't in 1904. 1904, of course, uh, the tail end of the Gilded Age, for example, a time of industrialization, industrialization and, and, uh, and technology. But it was also a time where women in this country couldn't vote. We were still 50 years off from the civil rights uh, movement. Uh, you know, there were no cell phones, no, you know, World Wide Web. We didn't have commercial air, you know, airplanes. But, so we could look at this piece and say, there, is, there are stereotypes here, and that is true. But we also look at this great music that he imbued uh, Butterfly with such love and beauty and humanity. And so I just wonder further, and I guess you kind of touched on it, how do we further look at this piece? There are people who say, maybe we shouldn't do this piece uh, today. And so I just wonder if you could, maybe you just kind of touched on it, I wonder if you could talk more about it. I think what's interesting is that this piece is so brilliant and so beautiful and it's such a masterpiece that we're still talking about it today and we're still trying to find ways to perform it in 2023, which will be a way that makes everybody feel, you know, that there's nothing offensive or nothing meant in a, I don't think Puccini actually meant ever to be, but he, it was a fantasy of his. So I think that it speaks to the, the brilliance of this opera that we're still finding ways to put it on stage. It speaks to any opera that stands the test of time mm. after hundreds of years that we're still curious about it. And we're still, I mean, for me, anytime we just talk about opera, it's a win for opera because we should be talking about opera and we should feel uncomfortable when we watch some things. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. And it's okay to also see yourself on stage and it's okay to not see yourself on stage. It's a story that that's kind of standing the test of time. Mm. What I find very brilliant about this particular production is that it's actually quite traditional once we get into the world of the of the VR. It's a very traditional kind of way to, that we see Butterfly. It's not completely different from anything I've seen. You can tell that it's another reality, but it's really true to the story, which I think is the, the point of, you know, telling a story on stage is just get to the close, as close to the story as you can. And the way that Matthew went about this, I think is just absolutely stunning because we know it's a fantasy, yet we still recognize the story of Butterfly as we know it. Th those of us who have been to the opera all our lives, you're not going to see something that doesn't relate to the story tonight. You're going to see something that relates really closely to the story. I second Natalie. I, we definitely keep doing this opera productions. The reason is because gender relationship is also part of the uh, question this opera is asking us, and, and it's still new to us. Like last 50 years or 70 years, maybe, uh, we are changing the relationship between male and female in this country. Japan is still behind, I believe, <laughs> and 
And so many Muslim countries are very different gender relationships they have. And it's not only women, men also struggling with this change. And this piece is questioning us uh, how we can deal with this uh, challenging together. So we, are, we share the space and I think about one thing together, which is amazing opportunity, especially across the, across the uh, countries. This piece is questioning about Japan, America, Western, Eastern relationship in Italian point of view. Such amazing <laughs> mix. We should continue doing this. Fantastic. So you probably were called on to do some heavy lifting uh, because we have the lighting of the New York apartment or wherever this apartment could be somewhere in the United States and then back to this fantastical setting, uh, at, you know, uh, where he meets Chocho-san. So I'm wondering, how did you figure out how to do the lighting? What were the, some of the challenges of going back between these two different worlds so it wasn't just the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is this the the. The design you experienced tonight is completely 100% coming from collaborations, not only me. And we studied what kind of productions we have, have had in the last 100 years of Mother Butterfly, history of Mother Butterfly Opera. And also how Asian community is described in the film industry. So you will see some yellow color a lot because Human, uh, our skin was described yellow a long time and still, still is. So we enhance that kind of quality, that's the one thing. And uh, also, uh, it's, everything is in the fantasy we are trying to achieve. So some piece is trying to make a realistic sunlight from the window in the apartment, but after that we are hinted by the game uh, industry. So ga the gamers has some neon in the house and a lot of yellow, pink, magenta color in the decoration. That is the one of the, another hint we used for this production. Great. I didn't ask you the two uh, working on this production. Did you change, do you have any new insights with this new approach brought in by Matthew Ozawa? Did you change your opinion about the piece or was anything changed in your mind about this particular piece? I, no, I mean, I, I've always loved it. I've always, um, it's always been one of my favorites, but definitely when I heard the concept, I was like, huh, how's, <laughs> how's that gonna work? How are we gonna be in virtual reality? You know, how, but then when I saw it on its feet, it was clear, it's so clear what happens and it really helped helped me appreciate how we could modernize a piece, such a historical piece, without really disturbing it much um, in terms of the story. I'm always about the story. I, I, I came into opera because I loved words and I love text and I love story. And as a pianist, you don't have text, words or story. So I went towards that. So when I hear the text and I see the story on stage, that always makes me happy. So I love this production. It's exceeding all my expectations of what I thought it was going to be. So I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't see it in Cincinnati because I was traveling. And I didn't purposely didn't watch any kind of archival footage because I wanted to get the first impression. But it's really quite remarkable. And the sets are just absolutely stunning. And yeah, it, it's, it's, for me, it's just magnified the story more, actually. Mm -hmm. If you want to add. Uh, 
the, this process particularly changed me, changed me or uh, enforced me how much I love opera because the world and movement and music coming together is such an amazing art form. And we try to ignore music first and reading, reading all the time, including the original text which Puccini was used. And after that, we just listen to music. And what world is telling me and what music is telling me is very different in this opera and how we put together is another challenge and it was a very interesting process. Then we came, came to theater and these brilliant, amazing singers moved beautifully on stage and then the choreography is coming together. How wonderful process is and I cannot get away from here. Fantastic. I want to go back to Natalie, if I could. Since you are head of music, you're pretty much at every rehearsal. Could you tell us about the preparation of working with the conductor, uh, that sort of thing, for this production? We have a wonderful conductor named Kensho Watanabe, and he is absolutely filled with music and art. The way he moves with the orchestra, the way he leads them, it's just quite inspiring, actually. He's a lovely human being. Working with him has been a dream. It's just really open to this, the process, open to the story, open to, you know, he rolls with whatever's going on, and that's really all you can ask for in a music director and a, in a conductor. And the singers have been working really hard on this, and we had a very, quite a short period of, of time to prepare. Some of them have done it before, and some of them are new to this production. So that's been really kind of fun to watch the people who have done the production before kind of lead the new members of the cast through and being so kind and friendly. It was a very, very wonderful uh, rehearsal period with very little drama and <laughs> just a lot of, of really supportive feeling. And can show, I think the leader of a rehearsal hall, which is a conductor, is really, it trickles from that. When we have a leader that's so endowing and so supportive of the process and of the singers, then it can't go wrong, it really can't. Fantastic. Could you tell us about some of the resident artists this season? I know they change pretty much every year or every two years. Could you talk about that? So Detroit Opera has a resident artist program, and what that means is that we invite singers that are emerging, that are just on the cusp of careers to come and join us for a year where they get coaching with me, they get to work with Christine Gerke, they have voice lessons, they have opportunity to cover roles on stage, which means what we used to call understudy. Now we say it's a cover, so they learn the roles and if somebody goes down and that's their role, they get to go on stage and luckily we don't have that this evening. Um, and we have two resident artists that are actually performing roles on stage. So we have five singers that are with us the whole year. We have a soprano by the name of Melanie Spector. We have a mezzo-soprano, Lisa Marie Rogali, who you will see as Kate Pinkerton and as the girlfriend of Pinkerton in the apartment. <laughs> um, and then we have uh, Rolf Dawes, who will sing this evening the role of Yamadori and the Imperial Commissioner. This is invaluable experience for emerging artists to just kind of get on stage with these opera stars and kind of learn from them and be on an equal footing as them. We have Ben Reisinger, who's covering the role of Sharpless, and Riverguard, our tenor, who is covering the role of Pinkerton. So they've been intimately involved with the piece. I've coached them, they're prepared, they know it by memory. Um, those are performing, obviously, but also our covers. So it's a very important part of any opera company to have young singers 
kind of getting their, their feet wet, as to, as, so to speak, to kind of like in, and be in an opera house, be in this amazing opera house with this amazing staff and it's just a wonderful experience all around. So we're really thrilled. It's a great group. Fantastic. Uh, this past Thursday, uh, we hosted here at the Detroit Opera House the International Women's Forum. Uh, so they came and did a tour of the Opera House, and we had a panel where we talked about the op this particular opera uh, and some of its challenges, looking at it uh, with our lens of 2023. One of the questions that, uh, I think the final question by Andrea Scobie, who might be here. Thank you for this question, Andrea. I stole it, totally stole it from you. Where are we in regards to opera in 2023 as far as women are concerned? Uh, what, what is the... What is the feel? Uh, have things changed, or where are we? In <laughs> I guess I'll feel the first answer to that. Um, I think that we have to look at women in opera in a certain way. Um, some of them, we might think that they're portrayed as being maybe weaker, or but it's not the case. I think, like in the case of Chocho San, I find this character to be extremely strong. I, I think that she is steadfast in her love for Pinkerton and her idea that she will go and be with him in America. She takes on the American identity because that's what she, she has married him. She believes in this marriage, even if it's not a true marriage. Um, she also has a child with him and she is there for that child and gives up the child essentially, you know, to go with the father. So um, I think even if it seems like maybe the woman is the victim or maybe if it seems so. I think in every character, if you look at Susanna in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, she's incredibly intelligent, Contessa as well. I mean, these are all pretty intelligent women. So I think if we have directors like Matthew that really kind of understand how to portray women, even in roles that it, you know historically might have made it feel like a woman was the weaker character or the, you know, the victim, um, then we're okay in 2023, I think, with any story. It depends on the lens of the, of the director, the lens of the person putting it on stage. And that's always the case. That's always going to be the case. So for me, um, I think let's make them strong. Let's empower the women on stage like we empower the women in every life, everyday life, right? Yeah. Well, how about you, Kay? I was going to ask, uh, how about as two ladies right now who are making their way in this business, uh, in roles of lighting director and uh, you know head of music, maybe roles you might not have seen uh, females in just a few years ago. Where are we with that? Would are you there say? a lot of lighting directors, women who yes. are lighting? Yes. Um, Jean Rosenthal is the first lighting designer in America who was the stage manager for Martha Graham Danskami in 1930s and then became a lighting designer for the as a professional position for the first time. She it was a woman. So woman, a lighting design woman is very uh, close to connection from the beginning in America especially. Unfortunately in Japan it's really dif different. Uh, for example, no theater, kabuki theater, we are not allowed to work even. We are not allowed to be on stage. Mm. And many shrines, many temples, I cannot get in because of my, I'm a woman. So Many reason, uh, many reason made me to come to America to do <laughs> theater work. And one thousand one hundred twenty years ago, I think one, uh, in in Japan, probably like a Chocho-san's 
uh, decision at the end is common. Maybe only death is what she could choose by themselves. But now um, we have a little more option even in Japan. And we may not need to die at the end. And <laughs> that's the big step we already did in 120 years. That's right, that's right. Did you want to add anything to that, Natalie? I do. I mean, I would just add that um, what I do for a living is, has always been a male-dominated field. Um, you always see uh, male coaches, male pianists, male heads of music. Um, it's, it's, I grew up in that way. My mentor, uh, Dixie Ross Neal, who was a coach at the Met years ago, prepared me for a life, a very difficult life, and she was very hard on me because she knew it was going to be hard for me to, to excel in this career because it was male-dominated. So I see more and more women in the field now, but it's very, we're still a minority in women that are coaches, repetitors. We had a woman rep uh, doing the, re the rehearsals for this show, uh, Kuna Lee, who's a wonderful pianist and plays in the DSO, but I if for me to find women that do that, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chore because it's mostly men, and I don't know why, but it's just kind of is that way. And, um, but I'm very much about trying to give women a chance to, to succeed, and this company is amazing because Detroit Opera, when I came here two years ago, I remember looking at the staff list, and I remember seeing a real equality there were as many women as there are men here. And I thought, that's amazing. I, I want to go work for that company. And I feel really empowered by my colleagues, my female colleagues and my male colleagues. So. Fantastic. Well, we don't, I'm running over now. Thank, yes, yeah, applause. Thank you, ladies, so much. I think the ushers are going to kill me. I'm over time. I'm Ms. Yuki Nakase Link and Natalie Doucet. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you very much. You Thanks, all are everybody. going to have a fantastic time with this production. So meet me in the, you know, in the staircase at the end. I'd love to hear your comments. Thank you so much. <laughs>